Today we'll be looking at Psalm chapter 4. The title of my message today is Demolishing Distress. I want to read the chapter in just a moment, but first let us pray and ask God to speak deeply into our hearts about this message. Many of you today are facing difficulties in your life, situations that seem beyond your control. This is called distress, but the Bible has a cure. It has an answer. It has a joy for our heart. And I want to pray that you would receive that today. So Father, we thank you for the Word of God. I thank you that as we've been studying the the book of Psalms, as we've been doing this expository teaching, word by word, verse by verse, that you're bringing your word to life. I thank you that as a preacher of the gospel, I don't have to rely on my own words, my own strength, my own charisma, my own power, my own wisdom, but your word is sufficient to speak for itself. And Lord, the more I can stay tethered to your word, the more impactful this message will be. And I thank you for the impact it will have, setting people free, demolishing, destroying, bringing down the strongholds of a distressful emotional life, of distressful circumstances in their life. And I thank you now in advance for the freedom that will come from this and the impact that will come from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn me to Psalm chapter 4. I'd like to read these eight verses to you. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, if you're in a place where you can get your Bible out, Uh, I want you to to look at this verse by verse. I'm going to put my finger on this verse and hold it there until I get to the next verse. We're going to go verse by verse and let the Bible speak to us. Psalm chapter 4, verse 1, to the choir master, to the stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So David is continuing his psalm here. The last one we studied last week was Psalm 3, and it was the time where he was fleeing from Absalom. It appears from um, what most commentary say on Psalm 4 that it's, it's a continuation of the same crisis that David finds himself in. And today, if you find yourself in crisis, let this speak to you, this Psalm of David. Verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and on your beds. Be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan writer, spoke of the early church father named Christendom, and he says this about him, that if he were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, And if he were to gather together in one congregation and had some high mountain for his pulpit from whence he might have the prospect of the whole world in his view and it were furnished him with a voice of brass and a voice as loud as trumpets of the archangel that the world might hear him, he would choose to preach on no other text than this psalm, Psalm chapter 4. O mortal men, how long will you love vanity? How long will you following your lies? What, what Brooks is saying here, and he's one of my favorite writers, is that this early church father said, if I could stand in a, in, a, in a pulpit on a mountain and speak to the whole world, the one chapter I would choose to preach from 
is Psalm chapter 4. Why was he so desirous to preach this chapter? Why not John chapter 3? Why not uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5? There, 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 you could choose so many multiple places in the Bible to speak that one message that's so important to you to speak. But he chooses this one. And I believe there's a, a very important purpose for this, and I would agree with what he's saying. And why would this chapter be the highest word for such a great man of God? Because it touches the very heart of nat- nature, the very heart and nature of evil. It touches the conflict that we find ourselves in in the world today. It could be a national co- uh, conflict. It could be a personal conflict, a family conflict. And, 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 and people face this in every generation. And this chapter rightly addresses the mighty internal conflict. And it is a conflict that is more costly, more devastating than every world war put together because it's the conflict of the soul it's the conflict of the heart. It's the conflict of the mind. It's the conflict of a difficulty in, in understanding what it's like to be under distress. You see, all the wars have started because men were under distress. All the conflicts in families have started because of this distress that the enemy puts in the world. And this, this chapter teaches us how to battle. It teaches us how to fight. It teaches us how to have faith. It teaches us how to have joy. It teaches us how to have life and overcome the powers of distress. It shows God's way of escape. It shows a way out of vanity. It shows a way out of lies. It shows a way out of seeking material goods for getting our joy. It shows us the joy of a higher purpose in life, the joy of the Lord being our strength. The first chapter of, of Psalms, if, if you were haven't heard that, you can go back in this series. And, and Psalms chapter 1 speaks of a personal temptation it's, it's, it's in Psalms 4, we're still in a battle, but Psalms 1 starts this whole journey that we're on of, of fighting distress and destroying distress. And this first distress we see is, is the, the, the man himself battling temptation, battling personal temptations. It's in Psalms 1, verse 1, it's the temptation to walk with wicked. It's the temptation to, to stand in the way of sinners. It's the temptation to sit with scoffers that's on a personal level. Psalms 2, it changes to an international, a global level. Nations are raging against the things of the Lord, uh, whether it be communism or, or atheism or all the different isms in the world today. They seem to be aligned together. Psalms 2 says they counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. It's a cosmic battle led by Satan himself. Psalm chapter 3, now it's not on the global level, but it's on a personal level within the nation itself. And this is the battle, this is the distress. I'm talking about distress today. This is the distress we're seeing in our own nation today. It has nothing to do with Afghanistan or the Middle East or or the border with Mexico. It has to do internally with what's happening in our own nation. In Psalm 3, we see that it was Absalom fighting against his own father, his own father, David. He, he He is starting a revolution, a coup, and David has to flee from his son, and it's this this personal distress of family of, of, or the personal distress you see of our, what's happening in our own nation. You can't turn on the news without being distressed in soul. Am I right? You, you see these situations that are happening all around us today. And in these situations, we, are, we can grieve of soul and be distressed. And it causes us, uh, sometimes if we're not careful, to fall into a despair or despondency or hopelessness. Now we can't find ourselves in Psalm chapter 4, in this fourth chapter, we still hear the, this song of conflict, this psalm of conflict, this, this raging thing in David's soul. He's still finding himself in, in, the, in the battle. He's still finding himself in this situation. 
You see, in Psalm 1, 2, and 3, he's, he's finding himself in situations where he's praying. He finds himself praying. Look at Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? He's, he's praying, O Lord, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He's, verse 4, I cried to the Lord. So there's this cry from, from, from the heart of David when he finds his soul and his circumstances in distress. And in Psalm 3, verse 5, he says, I lay down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Here's the picture that it paints. David flees Israel when Absalom and his 12,000 men army was chasing him. And he flees at night and, and, he, and, he, and he lays down and he sleeps. But he wakes again because the Lord sustains him. The Lord put a fight back in him. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten, uh, tens of thousands or many thousands of people. So, so he, he sleeps that night with a little bit of distress, but he wakes up with joy. And, and that spirit of unction and fortitude and fight within him. And, and he talks about the striking of the enemies. Now we come to Psalm 4. Interestingly, we find himself crying again, awakened again to, to the despair, to the distress around him. How many of you, like me, have found the same situation? You, you go to sleep with distress or discouragement, but then the Lord just gives you a, a fresh day, and you're excited, and you're on fire again, and you're believing again, you're hoping again. But your circumstances don't change. And when your circumstances don't change, you are tempted to go back into despair. And apparently David is hit once again with the realization of the circumstantial troubles that he finds himself in, these, these revolts globally, nationally, internally, his own temptations to sin. And he's fighting these things. In verse 1 he says, answer me when I call now, before we get into the verse-by-verse exposition of this chapter, I want to just break this down into three parts just so that we really can grasp clearly what the Lord's saying here. And very rarely do I, do I delineate uh, chapters into uh, headlines such as this. But, but listen to this carefully. There's three points, three par- uh, parts of this uh, passage. Uh, verse 1 through 3 speaks of the intercession of my distress. And I want to encourage you, when you're in distress, be an intercessor. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The second one is then instruction for escaping distress. <clears throat> we don't need just to, <clears throat> to pray, but to going beyond praise, get received, to hear from the Lord as well. We see that often in Psalms. Lord, let me hear you. Give me a listening ear so that we can have instructions from the Lord of how to escape to let this distress be demolished in our life. And the last one is what kind of impact is there when our distress is destroyed? What kind of impact will we have on others. So there's intercession, there's instruction, and there's impact. Let's dig in here. Now, verse 1, David is finding himself in great distress, and he begins this psalm with a cry for relief. This word distress here in the Hebrew is probably different than the way we use it in, in English. We seem to use it as uh, an emotional uh, despondency or being downcast, where the Hebrew word is, is to mean, it means to be in a narrow place or in a tight place, a difficult place, or to be closed in. Another way you might could say it is to be s- surrounded by your enemies who are pressing in upon you. You are confined on all sides. The enemy is getting closer, tightening the screws, so to speak. You are sealed in. You are, you are, you, you are surrounded by a military siege upon you, which is causing the distress of lack of supplies, uh, lack of hope, lack of peace. Day in and day out, this military siege uh, bombards you from around about you. 
It's like the enemy is ready to pounce, intending to do you great harm. It's kind of an in-your-face, so present and pressing that it has become almost claustrophobic. You just, from your left to the right, in front of you, behind you, on top of you, below you, there's this sense of it is so pressing. Strong's Concordance says you are crowded by your opponents. Crowded by your opponents. What kind of opponents? It could be emotional, could be spiritual, could be physical, could be relational, could be financial. There's, there's many different things that this word opponent could be spoken to of us in this day. <clears throat> but it is nonetheless a distress that we're finding. <clears throat> a couple of scripture verses that might help you understand this word more clearly is Numbers chapter 22, verse 26. Numbers 22, verse 26. And it says that the angel stood in a narrow place and you could not go to the left or to the right. The, 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 the sense of, of uh, the distress pressing in around you so many different ways, There's, you don't seem to have but this, the most narrow way of escape, if at all. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 6 says, But when the people of Israel saw that they were in danger, that's the, word, the Hebrew word, the same word there for distress, <clears throat> they hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in pits. How bad the despair must have been in their lives to have to hide in caves and under rocks and even in thickets that might cut you. You find ourselves in places and in situations to where we just feel like we're so overwhelmed, all we can do is hide. Are you hiding today from financial stress? Are you hiding today from spiritual difficulties that you face yourself in? Are you hiding in a, uh, an emotional place relationally with someone else? That's what this word, distress, that's what David is chasing after here. When he's crying out to the Lord, he wants this thing to end. He wants this thing to stop. And that's probably how you're feeling today in your situation as well. Isaiah 59, 19, to continue looking at other passages that use this word distress. Isaiah 59, 19 says, when the enemy, or, and the word enemy there is the Hebrew word for distress. When the distress comes, wow, when the distress comes. It doesn't say if it comes. It says when it comes. And if you've lived long enough, you'll know it comes and it comes sometimes in compounding ways, in cumulative ways, in ways that are increasing in your life. It might just be one thing that starts, but before long, a second thing, and then a third. And before long, before you know it, you have a multitude of enemies, opponents surrounding about you. When the enemy distress comes in like a flood, you know this passage well. It's a very well-known passage. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will lift up a standard, raise up a standard against it. That word, lift up, could be translated there as the Lord of the wind, the, the wind of the Lord driving something away. An enemy comes in like a flood. The, this distress comes in like a flood. Interesting, Isaiah is calling uh, this enemy a distress, this, and he's calling this distress an enemy. As it comes in like a flood, the Lord just drives it with a wind, drives it away. The New Testament, uh, it's not using the exact same Hebrew word, but the New Testament has the same meaning in in. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, it's, Paul says, we are hard-pressed on every side. This is the same meaning of distress. We are hard, uh, we are distressed on every side. It's, it's, it's pressing us in. It's a hard way to live life when all these things are coming around you. And David, who's making this cry in verse 1, has seen more distress than most others put together. He, he has seen from a young man having to be uh, a shepherd and fighting bears and lions to, to getting uh, anointed to the kingdom and all of a sudden he's in Saul's service and yet Saul is throwing spears at him. In Samuel 21, David has to hide in caves because Saul is chasing him to try to destroy 
his life. These are distresses. These are pressing in. David's hiding in a cave. He, he shut in in a, in a city called Khalil. And, and, and in the city, he asked the Lord, will anyone, will anyone help? Uh, and, and they will turn you, will they turn me over to my enemies? And God's answer is yes, they'll turn you over to the enemies. So he's in this fortified city and he's surrounded by Saul and his armies. And he prays, will, will the enemy, will, will my own people here turn me over to the enemy? And the answer was yes. So David had to flee yet again. You see him constantly having to be bombarded by the sense of circumstantial distress. And as a result of that circumstantial distress, it's very easy to get into emotional distress. David, at one point, First Samuel chapter 19, he is uh, getting ready. Saul has sent some men to kill him while he's sleeping in his bed. And Micah, his wife, Michael, his wife, says to him, uh, get up and go. And she lets him down through a window. How much distress that you're fleeing through windows for your life in the middle of the night, you would understand the distress. For me, it makes me look at my distresses and say, well, maybe they're not as big as I feel like they are. Now, each of us, no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're feeling at the time, the, those are valid feelings. And to us, they seem large and they seem, they seem big, especially as they're pressing in around us, surrounding us. But we have the opportunity to do, just like David did, is to pray. And David escapes that. He was let down through the window and you've heard it said, when, when God closes the door, he opens a window. But sometimes that opening of the window is not necessarily what we would hope for because that's, sometimes it's just a window uh, of escape. It doesn't get much worse than this. You're anointed the next king of Israel, and now you're sneaking out a window at night to save your life. Some distress is so pressing that it's a now situation. It's a tonight situation. It has to be resolved immediately. Now, distress is both circumstantial and emotional. And if our, we can have circumstantial distress and emotional distress, certain things come up against you, and it affects your emotions in such a way that it causes you to be fearful, anxious, stressed out, causing you to lose sleep, uh, tossing and turning at night, worried day in and day out. That's circumstantial distress plus emotional distress. But you can also have circumstantial distress, but also an emotional peace. And that's what God is going to do, we're going to see in just a minute here in Psalm chapter 4. Or you can have probably the best of all of them would be have circumstantial peace and emotional peace. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes God will just touch one, uh, the, the emotional peace. He gives you that emotional peace even in the midst of his, of his battle. That's what's happening in Psalm here where you see David having escaped from Absalom. And yet he seems to have a peace, but he keeps coming to the Lord to make sure that that peace stays solid, it stays firm in his life so that it's that it's, if he can't control the circumstances, that's up to God, but he can control through the Holy Spirit's power, and you and I can as well, we can control that emotional peace that we have in the midst of it. In Psalm chapter 57, verse 2 through 4, David speaks about this pressing in around him, this distress. He says, I'm in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are sharp as spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. This is the circumstance that David finds himself in in Psalm 4. And he begins to cry out, verse 1, Answer me when I call. Do you see his desperation? Answer me when I call. Answer me, God. O God of my righteousness. In other words, I've been righteous, God. Not, not by any merit of my own, but Lord, you put this hunger in my heart for you, like a deer that pants for the water. And my righteousness is not of my own, but it's just in that heart that you've given me. And it's a different heart. It's a man of a different spirit. And so, Lord, uh, you're, you're hearing the prayer of a righteous in the New Testament. It says that kind of prayer avails much. You have given me relief 
when I was in distress. You've given me relief when I was in this place, this closed in place. All right, we've looked at the word distress. Let's take a moment now to look at this other word that David's crying out here. You've given me relief. The word relief in the Hebrew means to be or to grow wide or large. It doesn't just mean like, what a relief. I'm out of that problem. But it means something even more significant, more powerful. You see, this is such good news for you if you're in a time of distress, that God is not just going to end the distress, to demolish the distress. He's not just going to cause you to wipe your brow and say, I'm glad I passed through that difficult season. But because of that difficult season, in the midst of that battle, through that battle, because of that battle, He's going to cause you to increase. He's going to cause you to grow. He's going to cause you to be stirred of heart. He's going to cause a greater passion in you. Exodus 34 says this, I will cast a nation out and I will enlarge your borders. You see, it's not just the, the casting out or the demolishing of your distress and your distressful circumstances, but it's replacing it with something, an enlarged border, an enlarged righteousness, an enlarged faith, an enlarged confidence in God that no matter what happens in my life, I can trust Him, I can believe Him. Look how good He's been to me. He, he has touched me emotionally, and He's delivered me from these circumstances around me. Isaiah 54, verse 2 is a passage of Scripture. Maybe you've quoted it before. It's kind of one of those coffee cup type passages that you might want to put on a bumper sticker or something. It says, enlarge the place of your tent. This, this is the desire we, that we have within us, God. I don't want to just get out of trouble and, and then find myself in a neutral place. I don't want to just get out of crisis or distress and then find myself in a place where I'm bored, where I'm lulled to sleep and apathy. Lord, but not only get rid of the difficulty, not only take me out of Egypt, but bring me into the promised land and then enlarge my tent. And it takes a while for David to get there, but in the 18th chapter, you finally see this rejoicing in his heart. You brought me out, and now you've brought me into a spacious place. That's what God wants to do. Now these themes are, strangely enough, and maybe I'd say sadly enough, these themes, enlarge my tent, bring me into a spacious place, enlarge my borders, they are often used in what we call the prosperity movement, the word of faith movement, uh, or, or the self-help church is maybe what I call it sometimes, uh, as material increase. You're going to increase my position on my job. You're going to increase my wealth. You're going to increase my car. You're going to increase my physical health. You're going to increase my popularity. You're going to increase my fame, my, my prestige. You're going to increase me. It's about me. It's, it's that self-interest gospel that is really no gospel at all. <clears throat> it is not, and I'm not saying it's beyond the scope of God being so good to us that he would do these things of, 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 of blessings on our life and prosperity in our life. But that's not the primary purpose. It, it, he's not just after giving you a larger footprint of a piece of property or the house size on that, the square footage of your home or uh, a bigger or more expensive car. He's after something in our souls. And we can, if we miss this, we miss probably the greatest work that God's doing in our life because we... We appropriate faith, we use faith, we have faith, but we use it, we put it, we direct it in the wrong areas. We direct it towards selfish things rather than the increase being in the things that are kingdom things, things of life. <clears throat> we have been sadly hoodwinked by false teachings, getting us to believe that enlargement is only a material prosperity and self-fulfillment. This truth has been hijacked by the Word of Faith movement, seeing it almost exclusively as that which is for personal gain, affluence, dream fulfillment, career advancement, larger cars and bigger paychecks. <clears throat> but I believe the increase has more to do with your heart 
than it does to your house. Psalm 119 verse 32 says, my heart you shall enlarge. You see, when your heart is enlarged, your love is enlarged, your faith is enlarged, your prayers are enlarged, your hope is enlarged, your joy is enlarged. And, and, and you can have, you, you can be a Christian and have all, be a non-Christian and have all those other things, but it's only the Christian that finds faith enlarged, joy enlarged, uh, confidence in the Lord enlarged. And that's what God is primarily after. Even though he's good enough to bring us those other blessings, he's primarily after your heart being enlarged. And I would go so far as to say, oftentimes, listen to me carefully, oftentimes God allows distress to come into our life. God allows us to be surrounded by enemies. God puts us in a difficult place. He puts us in a place where we want to almost cower and hide so that he could bring us out, so that he shows himself strong, that he reveals the power of his right arm, that he reveals that he's more powerful than chariots and armies of other nations, that we can trust in him beyond anything else. He is speaking here of increasing the defeat of our enemies and the growth of our spiritual strength and the enlargement of our relationship with God. The Bible holds out a higher calling and a greater purpose, being free from sin's power, being free from the world's pull and from self-centered living. It is an enlargement of righteousness. It's an enlargement of the Holy Spirit and it's an enlargement of our involvement in kingdom service, other-centered love and spirit-filled impact on the world around us, a world that is in deep crisis and in need of a deep move of God. It's a world that is in distress and it needs a church of Jesus Christ that has been set free from the emotional bondage to distress, worry, anxiety, and fear, and come up out of that vibrant and alive and being able to answer the question that we're about to see in one of these verses to come. Let's look now at verse 2. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies. Where God would honor a man of, with increase of righteousness and the glory of his presence, the world around that very same man would attempt to turn his honor, that woman's honor, into shame, to ridicule, to mock, to call them names, to take what is holy and make it profane, and to take what is profane and make it whole, what, what they would consider holy, to, to, to take a man or a woman who's lived their life in righteousness and, and does one thing that is sort of countercultural, uh, might say something against a particular sexual sin, and all of a sudden they, they're cast into this place, we call it cancel culture today, this place of shame, this place of not being allowed on, on social media anymore because you've said something about homosexuality or, or some other sin that the world uh, not only accepts but celebrates uh, and, and, and lifts up in pride. And we see this, this, this David is, is saying, O men, in the Hebrew there, that word means, uh, it can mean, O rulers, uh, or, or the, o, 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 o you those with authority, those in government, those in media, those uh, that, that rule and reign over uh, situations in our, in our nation. How long will you take honorable things and speak like shame in them? And then you love vanity, you love vain words. This is the idea of suppressing the truth. And, 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 and exalting a, a lie. And he says that, how long will you seek after lie, lies? David is doing here uh, what will come to each of us at some point in our life uh, where, we, where there'll be an attempt to shame us and the holiness of God that we ascribe to. But the believer who suffers the shame has the last word. Look how he has enlarged me, David is saying in this passage. He's blessed me. He's bestowed upon me. Short term, it may look like I'm defeated, but if you look at the long term, it's the enemies who are defeated. And David, 
after this difficult trial that he finds himself in, is, ascends back to the throne. He's brought back in, and there's a recoronation of him as king, and that's going to be happening to you in your life as well. Short term, you may find this distress, this pressure all around you, but long term, there's going to be God exalting you. Uh, the, the, for a season, there's weep, uh, for night, there's weeping, but joy comes in the morning. <laughs> Let's look at, on to verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. But no, Here, here's David's confidence. O men who taunt and scorn and ridicule and live under lies and suppress the truth, O, o men, O rulers, you need to know this is what David's saying. And there's a confidence in David. You can see it rising up as he's, as he's speaking this truth. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Hallelujah, this is such good news. This word set apart is the same word for holy. The word holy is the same word for weightiness. It's the kavad, the Hebrew word kavad, the weightiness of God. And God has put a weightiness in your soul. It's through those trials, it's through those tribulations that you become strong, muscular, if you will and having a, a godly faith and confidence to fight any battle that you find yourself in without cowering in fear, without uh, giving into emotional distress, but rather knowing that you are, through it all, a victor, conqueror in Christ Jesus. And he has set you apart, not just for victory, but he set you apart for himself. Here's the good news. In your circumstantial distress, when horrible things seem to be happening around you, when you find yourself in this particular situation where you don't know how to get out of it, he set you apart for himself. He hasn't abandoned you, hasn't left you, hasn't given up on you. He, he hasn't despised you. He is there for you. He's present to you. He, he, he calls you godly. He calls you righteous. You are the righteousness of God in Christ, and you are for himself. He, he, is, he is there for you. In the midst of that battle, he is present. He is with you forever and ever. There's some New Testament passages that echo this sentiment and are so important. John chapter 15, verse 18, 19 says this, If the world hates you, remember, this is Jesus speaking, remember that it hated me first. The world would love, uh, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Some of the distress that you and I might be facing today is important that we have that. If we did not have that distress of certain type of persecution, it might mean that we've watered down the gospel. It might mean we're not living as lights in a dark world. It might mean we look just like the world, and therefore there's no hatred of us. Some of the distress we're facing is a distress you'll probably have the rest of our life because it's a good distress. It's a distress of standing out in the crowd, of being different, of being what the Bible calls a peculiar people. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 says the same thing, of course. In other words, of course you're going to face this kind of distress. Your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. That's what David's saying here. They turn my honor, the honorable things, the righteous ways I live. You're, you're shaming them as if I should join you in your, in your folly, if I should join you, plunge into your wild and destructive things that you do, and you refuse to do so. Some of the distress then, the enemies opposed you, are opposing you because of the stand that you're taking for righteousness. I want to encourage my brothers and sisters, stand, stand firm, stand strong. Don't let any pressure around you. Don't let any circumstantial distress cause you to lose your testimony, to compromise your, your standards, to come off this being set apart, a weighty, holy, righteous person in Christ. The Lord has set you apart, and because of that, the Lord hears when I call to him. That's what David says. He hears me. 
It's the righteous prayers, as I said just a moment ago, that are availing much. He's hearing me. Now, to the second part, instruction in my distress. The first one is your intercession, and now the Lord begins to give some instruction. I believe this instruction is twofold. One, it's to the, to the, to the old men, to the rulers who are, who are scoffing, who are slandering, who are, who are calling righteous things shameful. And the other part of it is to, to us as well. It's, it has a, maybe a dual purpose, a dual meaning. And let's read it in verse 4. The instruction says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts and on your beds be silent. Verse 5, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We see here several things. Looking first at verse 4, Be angry. And as I said, there's two ways to look at this instruction, Be angry. The first way would be to be grieving over your vain words. It's, this is speaking to the old men. This is speaking to the unrighteous, those who are, uh, are, are speaking vain words and, and seeking after lies. Or another translation about seeking after lies says seeking after false gods. You're, you have idolatry in your life. And so, so the psalmist here is saying, be angry about that. Get, get upset about that. Let that disturb you. You should be disturbed over your sin. Get, get, get to the place of grieving over your vain words and over after seeking false gods. The Hebrew word here is to be agitated, to let this sin affect you, to, to say to yourself, no more, I can't bear up being under this, this type of lifestyle. <clears throat> the second way of looking at the same passage could be be angry at the condition of the culture and the generation that you're living in. Be angry like, like, like Lot was in, in Sodom. Be angry like Noah was. And, and, and if you look at it this way, it's actually... Um, a strange command, be angry. You know, oftentimes we are told, don't be angry. Don't, 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 don't get angry. Or just, just subdue your anger. But in either way, you look at this, it's a call of God. He uses those words, be angry. You should be angry. I was talking to a friend this week, and, and, and he had lost a family member, and, and he was feeling anger in his soul, but he was feeling ashamed about being angry about this loss in his life. And I told him, the Bible says, be angry. Get, yes, death is... Jesus is going to destroy death one day, but it affects us now. And, and we have the right and even the calling on our life to be angry. Lord, I'm angry over the situation. I'm angry over my own sin. I'm angry over the circumstances that are surrounding me. I'm, I'm angry over the, 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 the global antichrist spirit. I'm angry over what's even happening in America today. I'm, I'm angry at the declension in the church. I'm angry at the lukewarm church. I'm angry at the compromised church. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm angry that our, our government leaders are so... Uh, uh, pervasively wicked. I'm angry that the judge, judges in our nation are allowing things like abortion and gay marriage. I'm angry at these things. And, and this is what God is saying to us. This is the instruction for getting out of distress is to feel that anger, to, to, to know that some of that is called righteous anger. God put that anger in your heart. To be anything less than angry at the situations would probably mean that you're you're, you're without care, without concern, without passion, without zeal, without a fight left in your soul. Be angry, but do not sin. In other words, how you carry out your anger. Okay, I'm angry, so I'm going to fight with the weapons, the carnal weapons of this world. I'm going to fight with rebellion. I'm going to fight with arms. I'm going to fight with, with uh, <clears throat> withdrawal from society. I'm going to fight with false accusations. In other words, I'm going to use the tools of the world to fight a battle with the world. And the Bible makes it clear that we don't fight with those weapons, those carnal weapons, but ours are spiritual for destroying distresses, these strongholds that are around us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. So do not sin. It's okay to be angry, but don't let that anger carry you into wrong 
ways of moving in unrighteousness. <clears throat> then, then what we do next is we ponder in our hearts and on our beds. We are silent. Selah. We, we can breathe. We can go, Lord, there's, there's an anger in my heart, uh, but there's a right spirit within me. And, and I'm fighting my battles in a godly way. And when the day is done and I've, and I've I fought the good fight and I lay my head on that pillow at night, I can, <clears throat> I can be silent. I can rest. I can trust. And then in verse, verse 5, it's, the instructions continue. It, it says there, Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge that you have some distress. Acknowledge that there's distressful circumstances. Or acknowledge there's some emotional distress in your life. And offer right sacrifices. Lord, I sacrifice it to you. I offer it up to you. I cast all my cares upon you. Hallelujah. This is good news. You can cast all your cares upon him. And lastly, we're going to talk now, the, th- the third point is the impact of our distress being destroyed. We talked about the intercession and then the instruction in times of, 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 of distress, to be angry, to do not sin, to offer right sacrifices, to put our trust in God, not in other armies or in other resources. And lastly here, we're talking about what kind of impact does this distress being destroyed have on our life and also on the world around us. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have in their grain and wine that abounds. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. David's enemies are asking this question, who can show us any good? They've been shaming David. They've, they've, they've taunted his honor. And they're boasting in their vain lies and in their false hopes. Yet deep down inside them, they know something's missing. They, they, they are living in a world of despair. And the one question that comes out of them is, is, is there any good in this world? I, I thought my political power would be good. I thought my riches and fame would be good. Is there any good? And David's response to that is not, Lord, give me political power. It's not even here, restore myself, myself to restore me to my king, kingdom throne. But he's saying, Lord, let your face shine upon me. Let your countenance be so glowing on my face that I would reflect the light, the love, the glory, the power, the majesty of God. He understands and we should understand as well. We're living in a dark world where people are clamoring for hope, for life, for some form of joy. And they're looking in all the wrong places for that. We see there that they were looking for it in verse 7, that they have when the grain and wine abound. So here's a people that have grain. Uh, this speaks of food, corn. Uh, it speaks of, uh, of uh, meals, of parties, of festival, of feast. They have all that. And then they have wine abounding, drinks and parties and celebrations, and all forms of entertainments and dances and, and, and theater. This is, they're abounding in all these things, and yet they're still asking this very single question, is there any good to all this? Who, who can show us any good? In the middle of that, David saying, Lord, let your light shine on me. I want to show these men and women something good. I want to show them something powerful. I want to show them something different than all the world has to offer that is not truly meaningful. And that's why I tend to continue to come back to this, 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 this heresy in the church today that, that, the, that, that what God is after is our grain and our wine abounding. Well, the, the, the world has that, and they're saying, who can show us any good? And if we're saying, well, come to the church so we can show you how your wine and grain can abound, we're, we're no better than the world. We're not offering them the light of his countenance, 
That's what the world's hungry for. They were created in God's image and there's a hole in their heart and they're wanting to see that that glory still exists, that that light still exists, that that presence still exists. And God can do more through one man who has his presence than that same man who has all the riches, the corn and the wine of the world. That one man who's set apart for God, that one man who has his countenance falling upon him, that one woman who's seeking day and night, that one woman who's in intercession for this distress to be broken from their life so that they could rise up with the countenance of the Lord and say, Who can show us any good? I can show you some good. I can show you the power of God, the presence of God, the purity of God, the love of God. I can show you a way out of sin. I can show you a way out of of hell. I can show you a way out of despair. This is the power that God has. And as a result, then we go to verse seven. You have put more joy in my heart than all this grain and wine. You see, we have the, what is the outcome of the countenance? What is the impact of the countenance? It's joy in your heart. More. It's more joy. He, he's, not, he's not saying, I don't want any grain or I don't want any wine. He's not saying, I don't want to abound in the things that are temporal blessings in my life, but I have something more I want. I want the joy of the Lord. I want the presence and the glory of the Lord in my life. I want his, the fullness of him in his life. This, this is what I want to abound in my life. More than anything else, I want the glory of God to abound the world with all its prosperity, all its fame and fortune, all its riches, all its material goods, all its parties and all its concerts and all its entertainment are still without this true, deep-rooted, settled joy. It's found in Isaiah, 50, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 29, verse 8. An interesting little passage here when it says, As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating in his dream, but then he wakes up and his hunger is still not satisfied. And he goes to dream again, and he's thirsty in his dream, and he drinks in his dream, but when he wakes up, his thirst is not satisfied. And the result of this unanswered dream is, so shall the multitudes of all nations be that fight against Mount Zion. What Isaiah the prophet is saying here is there's a hunger in a man's heart and a thirst in a man's heart. But when he goes after these dreams that are not truly uh, things of substance of God, the weightiness of God, he wakes up and he's not satisfied. He has corn and grain, he's not satisfied. He has wine, he's not satisfied. He has drink, he's not satisfied. He has material goods and prosperity and fame and fortune, and he's not satisfied. He wakes up from that dream and he finds no life. And that's why, again, when the church just, when you hear in your church Sunday after Sunday, God's there to make your dreams come true. He's there to, to, to whatever you dream you'll, you can achieve. Well, I would encourage you to run from that church because The kingdom of God is not about your dreams because you'll awake from that dream and find it's not satisfying. The only thing that truly satisfies is is laying down that fight and submitting all things, just saying, God, I surrender all. My life is yours. Then comes joy. Then comes life. Then comes the light of his countenance. The follower of Jesus has more joy than the world has to offer because it's put there by the creator of joy. It's the only true source of joy it comes from God. And when they are looking for grain and wine, but they're still asking if they're any good, we are looking, we're the they that are looking for him. And as we look for him, our life is filled. And we don't have to worry if the, see the distress of lack of corn or grain or wine or fame or fortune or popularity or comfort or ease, the lack of those things won't destroy us. It won't cause us distress. 
The circumstances may still be distressful, but your heart will be distress-free. It will have, it will have been demolished in your life, and you will be able to, with, like the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 17 says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, and the olive tree does not produce fruit, yet I will, you know, I like this. He doesn't say, and I'm so distressed over these circumstances, and I'm such in despair over these circumstances. No, he says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What is he rejoicing in? God is his salvation. God has peace for him and joy for him, life for him, and not only life, but eternal life. Lastly, in verse 8, he says, I'll lay down and I'll sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. We do live in a world filled with distress. And it could be very easy for us in this world to be filled with anxiety and fear it would be very easy for us to wonder if things will ever change. It could be very easy for us to give up hope in seeing transformation brought into our own life, our own family, or even the greater culture around us. It might be easy to give up on the church and say that it's lost its joy and it's all after material things or it's all after our own dreams. It could be easy to lose your joy in the midst of the multitudes of battle that are pressing in around you. But this last verse is given to us, is given to us as a promise of peace. It says there that we will have peace you, you will find uh, uh, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. This is the result of God's light shining upon you. This is the result of joy being put into your heart. This is a result of having an impact that is causing the world to be transformed by the power of the gospel. When you don't live for the grain or the wine, you don't fear losing it. And the Bible makes it clear, when you don't live to gain your own life, there's no fear in losing it. As you give up your life to the Lord, you surrender it all, he gives you his all. Oh, what a great and glorious transformation. He puts his robe upon you and give, you give him your filthy rags. He puts his righteousness in your heart and you give him all of your unrighteousness. You give him all your fear, all your worry, all your stress. So I want to pray for you now. And friends, I just ask you in closing, if you find yourself listening to this message today and you've been in a place of distress and despair, enemies all around you, let's pray that the Lord would change those circumstances. But I would say to you, even if he doesn't, he can change your heart and give you peace in the middle of these storms. When the waves crash around you, the Lord raises up a standard against them. His wind drives them away. And yes, we want circumstances to change, but, but most importantly, we want our heart to change. And, and as the heart changes, then our circumstances don't bother us. They don't affect us. We, we, yes, we want them to be different, but they don't affect us. And so I want to encourage you in closing that you would pray with me right now pray with me. God, I, I want to do just what King David did here. Lord, I just, I, I just want to come to you in intercession right now. And at the end of the result of the intercession will be an impact on my life and an impact in my life to other people. Father, in the name of Jesus, right now I come before you and I pray for every heart, mind, soul, body, every mind listening to me right now. And Lord, as, the, as my words, and I pray they be words of the Spirit, uh, Spirit-empowered words, as they go through the ears of the listeners right now, God, I pray there'd be a peace settle upon them, a peace that passes understanding. Lord, that they would not be emotionally distressed. They would not live in fear and anxiety. And as a result of that, they would not hide when culture and things in the world around us get difficult. They would not hide from, from the, the powers of darkness, but Lord, they would run to the battle and say, Lord, lift your light of your countenance. Put joy in my heart that I might be in this last hour testimony. So Lord, I believe there's a dual purpose for this message. One is to uh, demolish my distress. 
but then also it's caused me to be a, a person with the countenance of the Lord that can be a, a destroyer, a demolisher of distress in culture and in nations and in the world around us and even in churches that are in need right now in families that are in need right now. Thank you in the name of Jesus for the delivering power that is at work. Your promises will lay our head down at night and be in peace. Tonight I'm asking for peace, for rest, for, the, for you to be that conquering king that takes every form of distress and causes it to flee. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Join us next week for Psalm chapter 5 as we continue this series. We pray it's been a blessing to you. We pray that you would uh, just grow by this and that you'd see the importance of going line by line in Scripture, not just ideas and fancy uh, illustrations and, uh, and emotional pulls, but really digging into the Word of God. That's where we find our life. That's where we find our power. That's where we find the freedom that, and, the, and the joy we're talking about today. God bless you.